Amen, amen. Great to be here with you this morning. Thank you for braving the elements and the cold to be here to gather together as God's people to hear the word of God and to worship in unison together. We're doing a little differently this morning, and it's kind of exciting. I get to go preach here and then go directly upstairs and preach to our Northwest and Espanol congregation. They get to hear the exact same sermon that we're hearing this morning, and uh, they get to be encouraged and uplifted together. So this is kind of a, a, a something, a new trial for us, see if, see if we can do this once in a while, every once in a while, but um, just to get our congregations um, together. As well, in two weeks, we'll have an all worship together service as we've done in the past and we'll have the Espanol congregation and the Mandarin churches coming in here to worship together and Mauricio is actually going to be preaching in that service it'll be right after Champs Camp and it'll be really exciting to have um, just a just a building of what God is doing not only in our church but also outside in our communities and inviting the communities to come in and Mauricio is going to do a great job at that. So we're really excited about what God is doing. And now we're going to go back to our beans and cornbread in Ezra chapter 4, right? Because this is uh, where we are in the book and the study of Ezra. I promise next week, I promise um, next time that I'm, I'm preaching to you guys, we will get to Ezra the prophet. But we haven't gotten there yet. Like he hasn't shown up in, in this book yet. And uh, we're going to be going through Actually, uh, uh, chapters 4 through 6, I'm not going to read all those chapters, don't, don't think in your mind. Rob's going to read for like 30 minutes, no. But uh, we are going to skim through those chapters and come to the conclusion of where Ezra actually shows up next time we're together. But we're in our series, and it's called the book of Ezra, Revive Us Again That Your People Might Rejoice In You. And that's, that's really the point of, um, of our life, of who we are, of our church, of what we're doing, that we may rejoice in the greatness and the goodness of our God, and that we may glorify Him with what happens in our life. And um, we're talking about God's rebuilding after devastation. And if, if we go back to the beginning of this series, we'll, we'll be reminded that God's people had not worshipped God for some time. They had, had gone after idols for some time, and after many warnings to return to God and follow His word, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple, the meeting place of God, the place where God dwelt amongst his people, the place of worship, it was completely destroyed. And all that was left in the city was rubble. The walls were torn down and the people were exiled to a, a foreign country of Babylon. And God prophesied through the mouth of Jeremiah that the people would return to the city of Jerusalem after 70 years of exile. And, and, and we remember that the famous passage, Jeremiah 29, 11, comes right after this prophecy that the people will return. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. What a truth to, 
to hold on to if you're the people of God and you're looking over the city that's been completely destroyed. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and your life is completely destroyed and you're looking out over your life and going, what, what do I have? What can I trust in? And God does something mighty and powerful and great as He always does. He stirs the heart of this pagan ruler, Cyrus, and he sends his people back to rebuild God's temple there in Jerusalem. We saw God's providence as he's in control in chapter 1 of Ezra. He stirs the hearts of man. And last week, we saw the people in chapter 3 setting up the altar for worship. And we were reminded that before they set up their army, before they put together their walls surrounding them and their protection, they set up the altar in worship, and they had it right. And that they were reminded that we must first worship God. We must obey Him, and everything else flows from that. And this morning we come to a passage, and, and this is normally how it happens in our life too, we see God do something great, and then we worship Him, and, and then what happens? We enter into the struggle. We enter into the road that seems difficult or hard or confusing. And yet, in the midst of it all, God is right there. And I want you to see this morning as we study this text that God has not left His people when they're in the midst of the trial. God does not leave us when we're in the midst of the persecution. He's always speaking the truth of His Word to us. And when we see these trials, God is working, not only in our hearts and in our minds, but for His glory. And for his good purposes. So turn with me to Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Ezra, it's on page 391 in the Bible in front of you. You can stand in honor of reading God's word here as we read the word of God from Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. I'm only going to read three verses. I'm not going to read all two, three chapters for you this morning, so... Your legs don't get tired. Ezra, actually the prophet, does this later in which he reads the whole scripture and the people read all day long. And uh, we could do that sometime, not today. <clears throat> um, but verse 1, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. And the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Urshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers of the houses of Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah 
and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You may be seated. Let's pray this morning. Ask the Lord to speak through the word of God. Father, we we come before you as a people who know the struggle. Um, There's not someone in this room, Father, that has not had to deal with struggles. Father, we know that um, there's difficulties, there's trials, that this world is broken. And Father, the enemy wants to uh, speak lies in the struggles and the difficulties. And Father, we, we pray that we would be a people that cling to your promises, that cling to your truth. And Father, that we would be a people who call out to their God in prayer and thanksgiving and remembrance the greatness of our God. Lord, we ask this morning that the people that are hurting in this room, the people that are going through the struggle, we pray that they would be encouraged by Your Word, by Your character, by Your nature, by Your grace. Lord, we thank you and praise you for who you are. It's a people that are broken and need you every day. Thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In some ways, when you look at this text and, <clears throat> and you read it, you think on the surface, how rude are these people of God, right? I mean, how rude are they? They don't allow people to come and help them in building the temple? I mean, how come they didn't use the help? There's, there's only a few of them, a remnant coming back to Jerusalem. They've got this huge task. And the people living there, they say they worship the same God. And yet, Zerubbabel and the leaders say, no, you have nothing to do with the building of this temple. And and sometimes things aren't the way that they seem. And I think you guys have lived in this world long enough to know that. There are people that, as my kids would say, try to trick you, right? (laughs) I'm sure you've seen uh, the show Shark Tank on television, right? Where there's these investors, these people that are wealthy, that have money, and they have created um, this, this show where people who create something or have a business come onto the show and they present their case, they present their, their, their presentation to these investors, and they call them sharks, these investors, for a reason. Why? Because these people want a percentage of their company or a percentage of their goods or what they're trying to sell, their creation. They want ownership for their investment. Reality, they they want a say in the company. And so they will pay to be a part owner. 
And as God's people are rebuilding the temple, these people in the land are acting as sharks. Hey, we'll pitch in and help you. But what they're really saying is, we also want to have a say in what happens in this temple. We want to have a say in what happens in Jerusalem. And yes, they say that they worship the same God. But guess what? Scripture also tells us that they worshiped foreign gods as well. And thus, the people of this land who wanted to help would have wanted to worship their other gods as well in that temple. Matthew 7, 15 says this, Jesus is speaking and he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or from figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And guess what happens here if you read the text of Scripture? They tell them no. And in verse 4, the people's hearts are exposed. Why? Because they begin to hurl accusations at God's people, they begin to thwart the building of the temple. Isn't that interesting? That they want this temple built, but then when they're not a part of it, they begin to try to make it to not be built. If they really trusted in God alone, they would understand the need for it to be built, whether it's them doing it or not. Such an interesting thing. In the midst of God's church, sometimes we think that it's all about us building something. It really has nothing to do with us and all to do about God's accomplishing His purposes. So when I can lay down at night and say, you know what, I did nothing and yet God was glorified, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for God's church. Accusations are hurled at God's people for standing upon the truth. You know, the enemy's tactics really haven't changed since the beginning of time. Try to get God's people to doubt the word of God as truth and then entice them to go their own way. This is the struggle, right? This is the struggle. Back in the garden, did God really say don't eat of the fruit. Did God really say that he would give you a hope and a future? You have nothing. Did God really say that you are to rebuild this temple? Because I'm pretty sure in the next passage when we read this, the temple work was stopped. Did God really say that he would bring the Messiah? I haven't seen it. And then when he comes and Jesus... Did God really say that Messiah is going to bring about salvation? Pretty sure he died. 
Then he resurrects from the dead, right? Trusting and hoping in the promises of God. The church, the same way. Did God really say that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Did God really say that? Are we going to trust that? Yet God is faithful. We need to not lose hope in this struggle. It took him 20 years to build this temple. Probably felt like an eternity. Sometimes in the midst of the struggle, it feels like an eternity. Yet our God is faithful. He will overcome. He still sits on the throne. And we will see the salvation of our God. Let's look at this text all the way through here. Verse 1, but now the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Urshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and and the rest of the heads of the fathers Houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building the house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. This is our first point this morning. God's people do not compromise the word of God. God's people do not compromise the word of God. 2 Kings 17 tells us this story about these people that are living around Jerusalem when the exiles returned to rebuild the temple. And it tells us in 2 Kings 17, this is what it says, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutta, Ha'ava, Hamath, Supervium, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there. And let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation made gods of its own and put them in shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. So the priest comes and he preaches the word of God. After these lions have torn him up, they realize they need something. The priest comes and he preaches the word of God. He tells them about this God, but they continue to live with their idols. So much so that they offered their children as sacrifices. Continue on reading in chapter 17. And then at, this, at, at verse 41, at the end of this section... Chapter 17 of 2 Kings, so these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. 
So when Zerubbabel comes back to the city, he's got a choice to make. He can either compromise, and it can be easier for him to rebuild the temple, or he can say, no, you know what? It's going to be harder for me, but I will not compromise the word of God, the worship of God alone. I will stand for truth, no matter the cost. Guess what, church? In the days to come, we will all have to stand for the truth. Every person in here, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have to make a stand. Guess what? This week, one of the uh, most historical um, votes was taken. History was made. Um, the United Methodist Church, most would call a theologically liberal denomination, it is the second largest Protestant denomination in America. They took a stand this week at their conference. They voted in favor of the biblical teaching of marriage and sexuality within the church. It was a big, big deal. I don't know if you saw it. The battle lines were drawn. There were three options that the United Methodist Church had to decide. Number one, to uphold the biblical view of marriage as God intended, one man plus one woman for life. Number two, to ordain openly gay clergy, affirm same-sex marriage within the church, and homosexual bishops. Or number three, the third option, to compromise, have a middle plan, in which many bishops supported promoting regional option where congregations and conferences could decide for themselves which direction they wanted to take. And guess what? They did not compromise. They did not go with the middle plan. It was rejected, citing unity at the expense of doctrine. They said, if we can't be unified on the biblical view of marriage, then we can no longer be a denomination standing as one body. It was a clear message sent in our day. It was a big deal. And guess what? We will all have to make a stand at some point. You will be either you compromise your beliefs, the Word of God, and appease to the pressures of this world, or you say, no, it's going to be harder for me, but I will stand upon the truth. Really, what it comes down to is God's word, the authority, or am I the authority? You see, the world teaches us, do what you want, be who you want, because what matters is you. And that's direct rebellion against God himself. And guess what? Anytime you take a stand like this, like Zerubbabel did here in verse 3, guess what? You will be persecuted. And this is what happens in verse 4. And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of the reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. This is point number two this morning. The enemy attempts to stop the purposes of God. The enemy attempts to stop 
the purposes of God. Guess what? People will bribe, they will discourage, they will do whatever to frustrate the purposes of God. Have you ever known someone like that? You feel it is their life goal to frustrate your purposes. There was a TV show one time Jordan and I used to enjoy. And um, the father-in-law actually lived with a young couple. You might know the, uh, the TV show once I talk about it. But this father-in-law, he's an older gentleman, he had no social awareness so, like, the, the husband tries to have this Valentine's Day dinner. He cooks all the food. He does all these fancy things. He dims the lights, has candles. And the father-in-law walks into the middle of the dinner and says, what's for dinner? I'm starving, and sits down at the table with the couple, you know? <laughs> or the husband's having his friends over to watch the game and in the middle of the game, he, he does something crazy, like begins construction on his bathroom, a shower, and has, has something going on. You can't hear what's going on. He just has no social awareness. And it's, and it's the funny, it's, the, it's, it's, it's really funny. Jordan's favorite TV show, really. But in the middle of all this struggle, nothing always seems to be going right, does it? And this is really where we need encouragement. Isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that where we need the word of God to encourage us? Where we need the people of God to speak truth into our life? Well, I, I hope so. I do. I hope you're in a small group. If you're not, you should be. I hope you have people that really care for you at that level. To walk with you through difficult situations in your life. To walk through the hardest times in your life. To encourage you to speak truth into your life. Because the world is going to speak lies. And oftentimes in the midst of the struggle, we'll listen to those things. At the end of verse 5 and 6 here, he gives the list of kings. He said, King Cyrus, King Darius, Ahasuerus, and Artaxerxes. He gives in verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes. And, and if you look at the kings, you have Cyrus who, who issues decree, and Darius is after that. And then you have Ahasuerus, you guys may know who he is, but he's actually the king in the book of Esther. And then you have Artaxerxes, who's the king during the time of Nehemiah, when they return again to rebuild the walls surrounding Jerusalem. But the temple's already built when Nehemiah comes. So actually, in verses 7 through 23, Ezra does something like a flash forward. He flashed forward to the days of Artaxerxes when they write and the... the, the the, the work in the city is stopped completely. There is no work going on, and that's actually when Nehemiah picks up. And so 7 through 23 is a flash forward of when the work is stopped, and then Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, talks about how Jerusalem is still in ruin, there are no walls, and God sends Nehemiah to the help of Artaxerxes. 
And he returns to verse 24 to the current day. And he says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So sometime between Cyrus and the second year of Darius, the work had completely stopped at the temple. The work is finished at the sixth year of Darius. So really, they go hard for four years. But my question is, why did the enemy really not want the temple to be rebuilt? My question is, why does the enemy actually attack his people? Haggai, who's a prophet, and we'll see in a minute, he says this, Go up to the hills and bring wood. Build the house that I may take pleasure in it. That I may be glorified, says the Lord. I think the enemy wants to attack. I think the enemy doesn't want us to accomplish God's purposes because it will bring glory to God. And guess what? We need people. We need people speaking the truth into our life through the hardest times of our life, through the struggles. And that's what happens in chapter 5, verse 1. Look at it with me. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Now you know why they're in the Bible. Those books, if you've ever read them. (laughs) They're there to encourage the people to rebuild the temple. Those books are there to encourage God's people. You can do this. God is with you. Rebuild. Restore. God will be glorified in it. The sons of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the promise beyond the river, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house, to finish this structure? They also asked him this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. They did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and the answer be returned by letter concerning it. Guess what? They just obey the word of the Lord. They don't have the authority to do it. They actually have the authority under Cyrus. But they just continue to do it when people question them. God's watching them all the way through, encouraging them through the prophets, through the word of God. Even though it is against the rulers of the day. Everybody likes rebels, right? I mean, you you watch Star Wars movie, you're always on the rebels side. You're the underdog. And often we in churches speak of the rebels as the bad guys, the guys who have rebelled against God. And yet Christians, for the most part in today, are counterculture. They are the rebels. You guess what? We are the rebels against the world. 
I would say that it is very counterculture to keep yourself from marriage, young people. It's counterculture to believe life begins at conception. It's counterculture to share the gospel in your school. It's counterculture to share the gospel, almost rebel sometimes in the workplace. And guess what? It's, it's definitely rebels to go into a foreign country that doesn't want you there to preach the gospel and go for the sole purpose of winning people for Christ. It's actually Christians who are defying the norm. And they actually stand for Christ. So next time when you, when you say, oh yeah, my son's a rebel, turn that, turn that. God has actually given to us some sort of ability to go against the world, put him in the right direction, not rebellion against God, rebellion against the ways of the world. No, ultimately, God is going to accomplish his purpose. And, and guess what? When the, they ask him these questions, they ask him in verse 4, who gave, verse 3, who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? They also ask him, what are the names of the men who are building this building? And they respond to these questions, telling them about the decree of Cyrus, which we've already mentioned. They, pe- they say, go look at the history. And Darius goes and looks at the records of the king at this time. And not only does he say, yeah, build this temple, but he says, give them what they need to finish. Give them whatever they need to finish this building. He says, Darius says in the response, in verse 12, of chapter 6. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. This is our third point this morning. It says, God will accomplish his purposes. Do we have faith that God will accomplish his purpose? I hope you see in this text that he will. Let me continue to read. Verse 13, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. They finished their building by decree of the Lord God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adair in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 
12 male goats according to the number of tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it was written in the book of Moses. Over and over again in the Bible, we see God working, God overcoming obstacles to accomplish his purposes. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, the purposes of God will prevail. God takes Abraham out of his people, makes a people from himself. His wife was barren. He rescues a nation from the most powerful nation on the earth, Egypt, takes them out of Egypt and promised them a land. He conquers that land through Joshua. He resurrects a people who have been decimated and builds a temple after it has been destroyed, all for one purpose, all of these things for one purpose, one singular purpose, and that purpose is to send Jesus, the one who brings life, the one who brings salvation. And you know what? The, the resurrection, which we'll celebrate here at Easter in a few weeks, it is the ultimate picture that God wins, that he overcomes it is the event of the crucifixion and the resurrection where the head of Satan himself is crushed. And this event where we see Zerubbabel and God's people rebuild the temple and worship God reminds us that God wins. That God will overcome all the obstacles that we face even today. You see, we know that the physical temple was no longer needed. It was just a precursor. It was just a picture. It was just a shadow for us of what to come. We know that when Jesus died on the cross, the sacrifice for sin was satisfied upon the cross. And now, God's Spirit, He lives in the hearts of man. Paul reminds the church in Corinth, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you're God's temple? And God's spirit dwells in you? Do you know that, church? We've been talking about the temple now for three weeks. Do you know that you are the temple? That God's spirit dwells in you? We must understand that now we have been given a great responsibility. As in the days of Zerubbabel, they're trying to rebuild this temple to worship this great God. And now, guess what? God's Spirit lives in us. How much more should we restore our life, live it unto the Lord, and sacrifice and praise to Him? This is the restoration of the temple. When God's people say, whatever in our life, this is the most important thing. We will worship you. We will bring glory to you through our life, through our body. 1 Peter 2, 4 says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones 
are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is it saying? You're a living stone. You're going to be rejected by men. You will go through the struggle. But God has chosen you. And guess what? He's building you as the temple of God for the Holy Spirit to dwell there so that you can be a holy priesthood church, that you can offer sacrifices to him in the power of Christ in you. This is why we live, to glorify God. And thus, when we are led by the Holy Spirit in our life, we see our life offering to the Lord in worship. See, this is what we were created for. And let's not forget that in the midst of the struggle. God overcomes. Let's pray. Father, as we worship and spend this time, these next few minutes, and worship unto you, we're reminded that we, Father, can do nothing apart from you. We can do nothing apart from Christ in us. And Lord God, we ask this morning that if there's anyone that does not know you, Father, that they would turn make you Lord of their life. They would repent of their sin and trust Christ. That you would give them the Holy Spirit. Father, they would be a temple that is pleasing to you. Father, you have given us life. Father, we ask as we look through this book, as we see Zerubbabel in the building of temple, we pray that, Father, we would build a strong and mighty temple in our life, even amidst the struggles that we go through. Father, that we would be a great dwelling place of the Spirit in this church. That our life would not be about us and what we go through, but our life would be about you, what you want. Father, when we face persecution and struggles and trials and all the things in this world that we see, we pray we stand upon your truth, that we would not compromise it in any way. Father, there's people here today, Father, who have compromised in their life, not a living, a life that is pleasing to you. They have grieved the Holy Spirit in their life. You have given their life as a temple of the Holy Spirit, and they've grieved you. And Father, we repent. We repent as a corporate body. We repent as individuals asking you to come make us clean, holy through the precious blood of Christ. Father, there's people up front here. I just ask that you would do a work during this time of worship in our hearts and our minds. May we be ready for what you have for us.